Welcome to the DTB podcast for January 2019, volume 57, number one. My name's David Pazakli, I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave, uh, DTB editor-in-chief. So this month, our editorial is called Challenging the Supremacy of Intravenous Antibiotics. Do you want to give us a bit more detail? Yes, I mean, that just about sums it up. Basically, what we've looked at is issues of IV antibiotic use, obviously particularly in hospitals, and the growing body of evidence that IV is not necessarily any better than oral in treating patients with significant sepsis. So at the moment, there is a general principle that if you think that IV antibiotics are needed, okay, you start a patient on them, and then as soon as you can, you transfer people to the oral equivalent. But are we going further than that and beginning to challenge IV antibiotics in general? That's right. So most of the protocols suggest at 48 hours you review IV antibiotics and shift. But actually, there's a growing body of evidence that for certain conditions, and we've looked at some studies looking at uncomplicated cellulitis and even bone joint infections. And even there's one study on endocarditis that showed the oral antibiotics were just as effective. And of course, the issue here is that IV access in itself has adverse effects. You can get sepsis from the actual IV access. There's an increased risk of errors in prescription, uh, increased costs, increased hospital stay associated with IV access and increased nursing time. So the concept that IV antibiotics must be better is one that we do challenge uh, quite uh, hard in this editorial. But we're not saying that there's no place for IV antibiotics. And clearly, for people, some conditions and some situations, they're absolutely required. Absolutely right. So patients that are severely ill, unable to tolerate oral, or where oral antibiotics don't provide adequate cover or tissue penetration, then clearly IV antibiotics are best. But I think what we're just saying is just just challenging that concept that, oh, you've come into hospital, you've got an infection, I'm going to stick an IV into you. And is there slightly more to it than just the science in that is there some perception that IV is better? Yes, I think I think this is the issue. I think what we're discovering here is that, you know, oral absorption of antibiotics can be very good. And and I think there's a there's a this is important because I think sometimes patients are admitted to hospital because there's a feeling that they need IV antibiotics. And if it was not that that was indicated, then actually we might better keep and manage these patients at home. So this is an important area of development, I think, because it has a knock-on effect on how we look after particularly the frail and elderly and patients who are best kept out of hospital. So time to rethink whether blanket IV for everybody is necessary. Exactly, yeah. Okay, thank you very much. And our first main article discusses the use of antipsychotic drugs in people with intellectual disability. Uh, and again, why have we chosen to cover this one? So this is this is another, I think, big issue. And it's all around intellectual disability, what we used to call learning disabled pe- uh, people. Obviously, autism makes up a major part of this. And many of these uh, people have seriously challenging and uh, behaviours and complex needs. And we just look at the issues around antipsychotic prescribing in these patients and really look at some of the actual evidence to support whether it's possible to stop using antipsychotics and that that's where we're going so it's it's actually trying to be pragmatic about this look at the evidence look how successful you can be at stopping medication in these in these patients and how best to go about it 
And some of the challenges we found, or the authors found, um, which are picked up in the article, is that although there's very little evidence to support the use of these drugs in the first place, people have ended up on them for all sorts of all sorts of reasons, and various reports have suggested that they're being overtreated. But equally, when you look for the evidence of should you stop and how to stop, it's not there. That, that's it. And I think that was the issue was, you know, what is the evidence that actually we improve outcomes in patients by doing this? And do we have any evidence on the best approach would be? So we looked at a systematic review that was published in The Lancet uh, last year, and that showed that the success rates for stopping antipsychotics in these patients can range from just 4% to 74%. But there were benefits. You saw often increased cognition and lowering of weight in many patients who were stopped. But also there were situations where you saw a worsening of behavior, a deterioration in mental illness and other issues as well. So this is not a... I think it's very simple to say this is a bad thing to do and we should be stopping it. Actually, the pragmatic, practical elements are very complex. I think what was particularly helpful, what struck me, was the way the authors have acknowledged this, that this is, there is no simple solution to this. And they also cite, I think, was it one study where they reduced by 12.5% from the baseline dose every couple of weeks. And the, and the success rate in that small study was not unreasonable. 40%, I think, stopped at 40 weeks. But, as you say, picked up problems of unmasking other conditions and increased worsening of behaviour in some some patients. Yeah, and I think what we've hopefully done in this article is we've talked about the NICE guidelines, talked about how, you know, if, if you're going to start these drugs in patients, have a rationale, make sure it's absolutely clear to everyone, make sure the team are involved, talk about how long you feel the medication could be continued, have a strategy for reviewing that. So that's the sort of starting medication, how you should do it. And then also there are issues around stopping it. Once again, making sure that you've got the team engaged in this. One of the interesting aspects from one of the studies was that the setting and staff probably are just as strong an influence as anything else on whether you're successful. And there needs to be support for patients, a contingency plan if things start to go wrong, and you know a crisis management approach so that you don't just stop this medication and walk away. Actually, this is a, a fully engaged and uh, difficult few months to sort of work at it and get it sorted. So while it might be possible to identify in your practice patients for whom a review might be necessary, actually doing the whole process is far more complex. Absolutely. And you cannot do it, you know, in front of your PC uh, with the patient's medication in front of you. This is something you've got to work with parents, carers, possibly even the, the patient if they've got capacity. Uh, there are all kinds of issues here around making sure this is done in the correct way and, and in a way that hopefully makes the best chance of success. But having said that, we shouldn't be put off just because it's difficult. No, I, 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 it's something that should be constantly looked at. You've got patients on antipsychotics. And this goes, of course, we've done previous articles on dementia. If you've got a patient on an antipsychotic for purely behavioural reasons, they should be having regular reviews. And every time you ask yourself, why am I prescribing this? Can I reduce it? Can I stop it? Excellent. Thank you very much. And our final article this month is another one of our case review series of What's this one about? So we've talked uh, about uh, angedemia of the small bowel caused by lisinopril. So this was a, st a case study of a, a man in his 40s who developed severe abdominal pain one night, woke him up, he was admitted, 
and given a presumptive diagnosis of colitis, interesting enough, given <laughs> two antibiotics empirically, uh, CT noted that he had thickening of the small bowel. And it just talks about the narrative of him then really not getting any improvement until someone clocked that perhaps he had angioedema of the small bowel. His lisinopril was stopped and within 24 hours he had recovered. So we're familiar with, although it's a relatively rare problem, angioedema with ACE inhibitors, but not of the small bowel. That's right. If you look at the SPC for ACE inhibitors, they'll talk about lips, tongue, but uh, I, I didn't find any mention of bowel associated with ACE inhibitors. I, th I think this problem is probably more common than we imagine. And I'm sure I've read somewhere, or it's certainly some uh, dictum that I keep to, that if I ever see a patient with angioedema, the first thing I do is look at their medication list. And if they're on an ACE inhibitor, that's the first port of call for me. So I reckon I've probably seen one or two cases each year for some time now. So I think probably more about than we imagine, but usually it's a very slight condition. Uh, seems to come and go and very often I think gets missed. But yes, certainly ACE inhibitors and edema, you know, just just clock that. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, to read these and any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com.